Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. All right, Eric, we are back. We have purposefully delayed this quarterly recap. You might be asking yourself why. Several weeks into the year, are we doing it now? Well, there was a big announcement we were waiting for, the Bitcoin ETF approval. And not just that we're going to focus on crypto markets here. We are making markets broadly, so we're going to be focusing on all markets. But wanted to start there. We're going to get to the strong fourth quarter, interesting start to 2024. But given this was once Web3 breakdowns, we have to hit on this. You are the resident crypto specialist still. You still have that title. Can you just share thoughts, overview? What are the takeaways? We had this approval earlier last week. What does it mean? Share the knowledge with us to start. It's a huge moment for a variety of reasons. I think the headline people want is, well, ETF and what happens to the price. And I think that's the 20th most interesting thing about the Bitcoin ETF. And the reason is that it's 10 years overdue, in my opinion, of something that came to market. For people that have followed us and listened to the story of curiosity, there's things that I like, there's things I dislike in the markets, but part of American capitalism is allowing innovation and risk-taking and people to try things. And that without that risk-taking and success and failure, we're not going to get growth and progress. It doesn't mean that we don't have things that are illegal or things that we shouldn't do. There are rules and lines, but telling people that they couldn't do something and having really vapid responses as to the why was, was outrageous. And you're spending American taxpayer dollars to defend it. So the analogy I gave, which I guess got quoted on CNBC, so this is my two minutes of fame, was that the Bitcoin ETF is like pickleball. It's loud, it's obnoxious, it's annoying, and every country club wants to ban it. But it's the fastest growing sport in America. And if the American public wants exposure to something, the best thing in a democracy is they're most likely going to get it. And so what Bitcoin ETF's approval marks to me is just a great day in the American capitalist system that a regulator, for reasons that it thought were right, decided it wasn't okay. People went to court. So you have to remember, this wasn't like a regulator approved something. Two companies, specifically Grayscale and Coinbase, won in a court of law that this had to happen and that the reasons to reject it were not valid, which is pretty wild. It's rare that people sue the SEC. But the SEC took such a extreme position. It put the industry and it's back in the corner, which is not a great place, especially if you have enough funding to fight with lawyers. So regulators can sometimes take extreme views against smaller entities because they don't have the legal wherewithal, which is a lot. If a startup comes to market and does something that specifically the SEC doesn't like, it really has very limited options to defend itself. But these companies had large balance sheets and a mission to fight and prove that they were right and they won. And so I think it was a huge day. 
I'm excited that we're here now that's available. It does feel in some ways anticlimactic because it was kind of the worst kept secret. So there was ways to look at this. There was ways to trade it. It was probably one of the easiest trades I've ever been able to do where GBTC, which we've talked about in the past, the Grayscale product was an odd product and it kind of had a defect, but everybody knew about it. It could take Bitcoin in, but it couldn't let Bitcoin out. It was kind of like a Roche Motel. And so what happened was when there was a lot of demand for it, it would trade at a premium. And when there was fear about it, it would trade at a discount. And so early in its life, it traded at a premium. There's actually an arbitrage trade, which people got blown up on. We can go into that. But needless to say, GBTC was usually at the center of some problems, not because of itself, but how people were using it. GBTC started to trade at a steep discount. I think the highest I ever saw was 48%, meaning that the fund, if it was $20 billion, the actual underlying price you would trade at was $10 billion. Interestingly, the fund charged its 2% fees on the NAV, not the discount. So if you like do that math, this thing was making like 5 to 6%. This is like one of the most profitable products ever launched. But that discount to me represented, like why would that discount ever collapse? And what you could say is that the discount would collapse if you believed that someday the ETF would be approved, that GBTC could convert itself from this antiquated legal structure to a publicly traded ETF. So as the law cases started to go on, when a case is one, you could see the spread collapse. And you're like, what does a 0% collapse look like? It looks like an approval. So that thing went from a 40% discount to zero because now it's an ETF, which is interesting. So going into it, I think most participants I thought knew about it. Maybe the general investing public didn't, but that's kind of the backstory. Now that it's launched, it's hard to say it's not one of the most successful launches. I think I just read that BlackRock and Fidelity just crossed a billion dollars faster than GLD. GLD is the gold ETF. When was that was, approved? I think it was today. Time. Oh, GLD? Yeah. Oh, I don't know when the GLD was approved. I just knew the days from launch to a billion. I think for GLD was like four days. And I think these things did it in three days. But what's also wild about that is that GLD was by itself. They had solved the problem. It's hard to own gold. They're going to put it in ETF structure. Here you have 11 participants beating the hell out of each other trying to raise money. So arguably, you could have said, okay, the money's going to kind of mix between them. So raising a billion that quickly is pretty wild. Yeah, GLD was 2004. So still relatively recent. I was making sure it wasn't like, yeah, the 1930s or something where uh, a billion meant a little bit more or was a little (laughs) bit different. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And I think all those asset allocation conversations become a lot different when you have something like an ETF that you can drive dollars into. I guess when you think about the underlying Bitcoin or anything around crypto, are there major things on the calendar now? I think regulation was one of these themes that we had last year when we used to have these conversations. But what kind of remains as the catalysts, whether it's regulatory or other? So regulatory, there's definitely things that people are going to trade. So the next trade, which was kind of the rotational trade, was if buying Bitcoin in November, December time period of like getting the cases and saying, I think this is more likely going to happen. Going into it, it was to move into Ethereum because if you think about, I love Howard Marks's like second order thinking. It's like, okay, if that happens, then what's the market going to do? The exact thing you're asking is like, okay, what's next? So if a Bitcoin ETF got approved, you could say, well, what's the market going to do? The market's going to ask if an Ethereum ETF is going to be approved. And so Ethereum started to outperform almost as soon as you saw it be official, Ethereum started to outperform Bitcoin. And that has to do with the fact that I believe in May, we're going to get a ruling on if that will be approved. And the question becomes, is the SEC going to say, I don't want to go through this back and forth again? Or are they going to want to say, you know what, let's go back to court. Someone's going to have to bring a lawsuit against us to make this happen. 
so the market's still undecided, but there's a regulatory thing where the market's got its eyes on that. There's also regulatory approval for like all of this stuff. I think having three times levered ETFs probably doesn't make a lot of sense for the general public or one day options. Again, I wouldn't ban them, but you're going to see, I think people have already filed for 100 times leverage, 200 times leverage, and 300 times levered Bitcoin. Hard to say they can't approve them because you've approved them for other things. So then you'll have an options market that will get turned on. So there'll be a lot of other vehicles that will let people trade these things approved. But I think the bigger story about the narratives or the thesis is that in the short term, ETFs to me have always been like Hollywood studios. This is about marketing and brand. They're kind of commodity products underneath the hood. You can fight on fees. You can try to fight on maybe security and custody. But at the end of the day, people know the brands. So one other thing that's interesting about ETFs is there's certain restrictions we don't have to get into that they can advertise some parts of what they do, but they can't advertise others. But they can always advertise the products. If you ever see these ads, there's going to be a lot of ads over the next year that are going to have Bitcoin's great for this or Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, digital assets. And at the end, you're going to see BlackRock. Bitcoin, 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 Fidelity, Bitcoin, 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 Bitwise. So you're going to see a lot of advertising in the short term. And I think what happens is it becomes, the thesis has been this is an emerging asset class. That was the genesis of Web3 breakdowns, that this is real. And no matter what anyone says about it, we should pay attention. It just seems to me that this happening, when we went to Wall Street, you could work in the bond group or the equity group. And then of those, we had our subdivisions, right? You went to high yield, distressed credit, a really cool group. There's a group now, digital asset trading. That's a real thing. Now, to be fair, there's authorized participants in the US and a lot of these trading desks are still because of US regulatory posture offshore because nobody wants to get in trouble. But I think that will change over time. But it's a real asset class in the sense that the streets version of adopting it and kind of saying it's acceptable, that's a big step. And then in the long term, and I think people mistime this, is how the wealth management asset management industry will adopt it. So this is the asset management saying we're creating a product that has retail demand. But one of the bigger use cases is the RIA market, wealth managers, family offices. And the reason was that it's just an easier vehicle and formation for them to do it. And so I think that becomes part of it. And it just, as much as people want to turn away and say, like, let's not talk about it or they don't give a shit, it doesn't really matter because when there's demand, Wall Street will go. And Wall Street is very unbiased in that manner. A lot of people are going to make money and start trading it. And I think over time, this is just the first real step in how we would think in traditional finance of adoption. Yeah, makes absolute sense. Just touching on the Ethereum approval, is there anything different about Ethereum relative to Bitcoin that could come up and stop that from being approved? The major difference is that Ethereum converted its underlying technology for all intents and purposes, or its consensus from proof of work to proof of stake. So... In a simplified version, what that means is that created a version of a different structure. So that's one thing that could be looked at. With that comes this notion of staking and how rewards are paid out. And staking looks a lot like yield. I've always thought about it of this really interesting version of a bond where you have a variable coupon payment that can come. But I'm using words that sound a lot like a security. That being said, the Bitcoin analysis of it being a commodity and not a security with Ethereum there's this famous speech called the Hinman speech. Hinman was someone who was working at the SEC that basically laid out this framework of, is it possible that something could be defined as a security under what's called the Howey test, which then we've talked about in the past. But then over time, as it became decentralized, it's no longer a security. So if you think about a decentralized network, 
there's no CEO, there's no board of directors, there's no one to talk to. It's a piece of code. So is that code a security? Well, in the early days, when a bunch of people first launch it, there's an argument that goes, well, it kind of looks like an actual unregistered security. But then over time, as those people step away, they don't have the same level of control. It's a decentralized network. There's a view that, well, maybe it's not a security anymore. That's tough because it's not as clean as they're not securities. So I definitely think Ethereum has a harder road to fight. It's why I think if you've seen any of the congressional hearings, there's a reason why when Congress asks Gensler directly, is Ethereum a security? He won't answer because nobody wants to get to the point they got. When they said Bitcoin wasn't security, I don't think they had any idea what was going to happen, the knock-on consequences of that, but they couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. There are times in the past where people have said Ethereum isn't a security. It's been left out of certain lawsuits. This is what I can probably have more confidence. I don't think you're going to end up with a Doge ECF, at least in the next 24 months. But an Ethereum ETF does seem likely, in my opinion. And it's just a question of, can they find a different argument? And there are things that are nuanced about it that I could see why someone could say Bitcoin's okay, Ethereum's not okay. But I could also see someone bringing a lawsuit very quickly that a judge would say, nope, I think these are fine and, and keep going. And that's just a weird regulatory regime to be in that we're going to do this in the court system. Now, on the opposite side, some people have said like, this isn't right. Well, you have courts ruling on it. And that way, you have a lot more finality than it being challenged in the future. You laid that out nicely. That was exactly what I was looking for when I asked that. Interesting nuances to it. Interesting momentum behind it. But something to watch out for later this year. And yeah, it was interesting to just see in the fourth quarter, you saw this rally, Bitcoin risk securities in general, but I think it was up north of 50%. And classic buy the rumor, sell the news where it's traded more or less in line this year. But a lot of that came at the end of last year. And it's a good segue just to transition to broader asset classes. Talked about risk on environment. You've been going across different markets throughout your conversations, whether it's the art world, the car world, the fixed income world. How has it been just to transition back into the traditional markets, obviously into some niche markets as well, but what has the experience like getting a little bit further away from the uniqueness and the eccentric world of crypto? I don't think I ever left. I think you're kind of a markets person. We've talked in the past, like, why is it that fixed income people like crypto, sometimes a little bit more? I'm a fixed income guy who got interested in crypto, which for everyone was like really weird. But Larry Fink is a fixed income guy who also understands the power of not just Bitcoin, but also blockchain and settlement layer type stuff. So you have like this two-part world of infrastructure that makes it super interesting. The opening, the aperture, as I tell people to do everything, to me, that was the original genesis of it anyways, that when people would talk about crypto, they would talk about it like it was some alien thing being done by these like evil drug dealers. And maybe early on, that was like, majority of the use case. But I'm like, I just don't see how it's different than so many other things. The notion that you have an instrument that people want to buy and sell it, that there's risk being taken. I see that everywhere in my life. The way I walk around, I got to talk to people and I get excited about stuff is like, I met a friend at a bar and started telling me he traded rare art. I was like, what? He's talking about liquidity and position sizing. I'm like, that sounds really interesting. That's just how I'd manage a bond portfolio. It's just different things. People trade tickets and cars and watches. They trade time and status. They trade brand and image. There's all of these things that are constantly being traded and there's markets for them. And I'm just love talking to the people that are participants in some way. They're either taking risk, valuing risk, thinking about it. Some of the common things is they've learned a unique insight about the world and it could be the infrastructure layer. Some things are just 
interesting to trade because there's a level of friction. In the art world, there's a world of people that where this stuff trades and you can't just go everywhere and do it. There's no StockX for rare art. It's just not the game. In modern art, there's certain gatekeepers and all the markets that have a lot of assets or power associated with them just have these common themes. And I just think it's so interesting. And crypto is just the new one that was emergent. So the lens we were trying to bring is like, is this really that different than anything else? And it never seemed that way. So it's been a lot of fun. I think one of the harder parts is we've met some really interesting people that trade a lot of stuff. And there are some amazing traders that I would pay money for. Like, I think that when someone says, what's the interview you want to do? It wouldn't be uncommon to say, I want to interview Elon Musk, or I want to interview Jeff Bezos. The people that I want to do bet on horses, trade tickets, own farmland. They make so much money in their niche. They're never going to talk to you about the edge that they've found because there is no incentive to tell the world about it. So that's been one of the hard parts. We've got to meet some really cool people that will talk to you off the air, but they won't share them. But I'm hopeful that as the show continues to grow, more and more people will share their stories. But it's been a ton of fun. Yeah, it's certainly a challenge. And it feels like the further you get away from traditional financial markets, the less willingness, there's more reluctance. Even when they do speak, they're not speaking in the same traditional terms that has just become the nomenclature, I think, for financial markets. But even finance, I just feel everyone's putting on masks. They're not telling you shit. You think Bill Ackman's telling you about his trades? Like Cohen's going to say anything? They're talking about bullshit they did before. Their trades are stuff that happened. So it's like the stuff that you used to do at Raven are like those shits. That's a great thing. So I think I've learned some techniques. Tell me about an edge that we used to have that no longer exists. That's probably one of my favorite areas to go down with people because it shows that you have that. You have that mentality that you found something and you're willing to talk about that. It would be preposterous to get someone on to say, oh, we have this amazing spirit airline debt distress trade on of course you do like you're not gonna tell me right now but after it plays out if you can get someone to share that and then let people put the pieces together of like how did this happen that's where the themes are interesting they became deep domain experts in something they started to connect dots typically that were not easily connectable and ran a playbook that they've been able to compound wealth in a different way than just buying the s p 500 when you think about the people that are successful in these, in particular, these niche industries, what you were mentioning, whether it's farmland or art, how transferable do you think those skills are? Do you think that you could take those people out of those markets, put them into somewhere else and over, we'll give them an extended period of time, they could see the same success? How transferable do you think that edge and money making in particular market skill is to other markets? That's a fun one. My instinct, having talked to lots of people, is probably like 80%. I think most people can. I think that there's a universal language of seeing markets and seeing an edge and having like commercial brain about you that you're just like, it might take a period of time, but if you drop that person in, I think a lot of it is why you hear people, sometimes the language they'll use is like games. They're just games. So first they need to understand that that game's being played. Then they need to understand the rules of the game. Then once they've done that, they can see people that are playing the game well and people that are playing the game poorly construct a strategy that fits their personality and then go execute the game. And the games that they like playing are typically ones where there's some level of friction where it's like hard to understand something. That's what I mean. Like no one's allowed to play the game unless they have some sort of special pass. Like you can't buy a used car unless you have the auction rights to get into this arena. Or if ChatGPT can look it up or I can Google it, that's not really valuable. Like the data underlying the decision is unique. And so 
I think most of those people are highly transferable. And I think some people probably aren't aware of that. But if you said like, would this person make a good trader or a good investor? I would totally take someone trading horses or farmland and let them trade bonds over someone who had like an education or a pedigree or read lots of textbooks because they have an instinct for risk-taking. They've probably experienced loss and failure, which got them to understand risk management. And then with those skill sets can probably tackle a lot of different markets. Whether they realize it or not, I guess there's something about identifying what matters and what doesn't matter along with those things. And if you can help them connect those dots, it's quite interesting. You touched on gatekeepers before. And I think that's something so interesting, particularly in the illiquid markets. Has there been any real lessons or anything that you've taken away in terms of industries or markets with really big gatekeepers and the skills and tactics that it requires to break into those or some of the techniques that you see the best people seem to have, traits and techniques when getting into those markets? I forget if it was on one of our podcasts or if it was a book, but someone was talking about don't seek the people, seek what they're seeking. There's this constant thing I've come across or a consistent theme, not constant, a consistent theme I've come across of like, those gatekeepers got into that position in a certain way and they have certain things that they're looking for. So like the one that just came to mind was I was showing Michael Lee art and he was showing me this $16 million picture. And I was like, I don't get it. And then I showed him some digital NFT art and he's like, it's sophomoric. I'm like, who decides that? And he was like the Yale school of modern fine art or something like some prestigious school. Like that's their school. And I was like, that's so interesting. Like they are the gatekeepers, but they're not the auction house. They're not the person where you buy and sell. They're not the broker. They're not the trader. They're not the investors, but they're the tastemakers. And so it's those tastemakers that decide, this is what I mean. Like it always crosses over. What's the tastemaking of Wall Street right now? Private credit, private debt, alt this, alt that, litigation finance. Like what can I get people into that they haven't heard of? Because I need to find some uncorrelated source of alpha. And so we just go on these phases where it's not like, collusion it's just kind of like this mimetic behavior happens where the gatekeepers the tastemakers say something and then everyone starts to go there and so it's just kind of interesting to take a step back and like why are we all doing this thing right now why is everyone's kitchen white cabinets why is everyone wearing lululemon why are people dressing like children instead of dressing like with suits like and there's kind of a trend that happens with tastemakers and there's underlying themes so that's a little bit more tastemaker than gatekeeper i think the gatekeeper thing one of the most interesting things about these traders is they found places where there weren't gatekeepers. You can't get onto Wall Street and trade billions of dollars of bonds just because you want to. But you can trade as many baseball cards. The barrier to entry is a lot easier. And it's a great place to start. You can trade skins online. But then you realize that in these areas that presumably have low barriers to entry and probably have some fat margins, once you get up to scale, these are professional organizations. The people doing this stuff have hedge fund-like operations. So people might look down on it and be like, oh, they're trading tickets or they're trading baseball cards. Oh my God. I'm like, they're minting money and people don't know about it. And if you actually got a chance to go inside, it looks more advanced than most Wall Street trading desks. We just hold up and accolades these certain roles because they're obvious. And I would say that that's actually the most interesting thing is that the highest gatekeeper areas cause these kind of personality types to like find something else and this has gotten to something else we've debated about, this like hustle versus grifter thing. Crypto is a perfect example. Nobody asks you where you got your MBA in crypto. No one says I went to a school outside of Boston. Nobody says I was at Chicago. They're just like, I traded this thing or I worked in this place. So 
when the barriers drop, there's a rush to it that that hustle-driven mentality is going to go after. The downside of that is then when there is no gatekeeper, there's also a lot of scammers or corruption. The gatekeepers on the other side also stifle innovation and lead to these nepotistic old boys clubs. So it's a trade-off. And the fun thing about markets specifically that I love is I think a lot of people crave meritocracy or like where your skills equal your value. The markets kind of figure themselves out. If you're good at it, you find your niche and you can like get through some of those gatekeepers or um, tastemakers that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to break through. You remind me of a really interesting report that came out. It was years ago, but it was right around the craze of daily fantasy apps where they showed that the winnings were 90% plus going to institutions and that pretty much everybody that was playing and just putting money into this was losing or a very small percentage were winning. And you had all of these true operations, almost head fund like in nature that were collecting. And I think anytime you see a ton of money in these markets, you have to assume that there's big organizations building up on the other side of it. I guess when you think about identifying markets that are attractive to either learn in or don't have the gatekeepers that are going to just give you that disadvantage, you don't want to be walking into the casino where the odds are stacked against you. But do you think there's characteristics about markets that you would look for just in terms of finding opportunities that might not be seized and captured and gatekeeped by big organizations today? I'm going to answer not exactly where you're going. I think it's important. The top people in markets, myself included, live in a hyper paranoid state that they have no idea that even when they're at the top of the game, just assume there's someone smarter, hungrier, better on the other side of the trade. Like why was I able to do that thing? And so you just live in this constant state that someone's doing it better than you. Even if you've been number one or two for a long time and you've got good performance, they just never, ever become complacent. They always have that beginners. The thing you're asking about is like, how do I find a new market? So I'm thinking about a young person being like, where should I go apply my craft or put my effort? But the people at the top of their game just feel like they just started yesterday. Like I know nothing, absolutely nothing about what I need to know. And everyone else is going to outsmart me and I'm going to lose. So it's just this like pitting your stomach feeling that you've got to scour every possible nook and cranny and have a giant respect that all the games are extremely hard, that making money usually is not easy. And it only becomes easy after you've tortured yourself into a state of finding every nook and cranny and becoming truly a market expert over time and losing and probably waking up every day, never appreciating any of that because you think you're going to lose that edge. So that's why I think that when I look for markets, it's things that the personal interest stuff helps. I think that's the minority, though. When people trade stuff and they get personally interested in it, then that's usually bad because they like, they like it or they care about it. You see this as like a great example of like businesses not to fund is when some relative says they want to open up a sports memorabilia store because they really like sports. You know, that's a horrible idea. But if the cousin that knows nothing about sports is like, I want to flip basketball sneakers, you're like, great, go do it because... They don't mean anything to you. They're just things. And that's what I mean. Tickers, tokens, Q-sips, farmland, stickers, watches. If you get it, you can kind of get it. And so there's usually a language that you have to learn. And obviously, the best way is I still think, and it was the way I learned, is apprenticeship. That if there's ever a chance to find someone in that market that you can learn from, that's going to accelerate everything. It doesn't mean you can't do it from nothing and just get into it. But there's got to be something there that you wake up every day with the personal belief that there's an edge that can be found that's worth hunting for. Because it's just relentless 
unforgiving, unthankful. And the truth is, you can waste all your time. The paranoia isn't just like some sort of like humble thing. No, you get your face blown off because someone else finds a better way. And then you lose. And all that time you spent is a complete waste. And this gets back to that, could they find it somewhere else? I think the best investors and traders both are aware of that and completely willing to find other games. Was it Eric Serrano who did the seed fund? Yes. He brought up a point, which is such a good one that is worth probably a whole episode of when you raise money, we're going back to traditional markets, and you tell people you're doing this thing, you're allowed to lose money with how you told people. You're allowed to make money any way you want. And there's always a tremendous amount of breath given if you found a new way to make money. So imagine a fund that was doing long, short equity, a venture capital fund, even better, simple. Venture capital fund, finance to small businesses. Somehow decides it wants to write a check for Solana. Is Solana a small business? No. Do they have this token round that everyone, yes. Solana goes up a trillion dollars. Their portfolio is down a billion, but their numbers look good. We're like, are they a good investor? Was that their process? It's completely outside. But on the opposite side, if that thing lost money, steering off that path. And so the people that I think have the most freedom are when they're outside of those lanes. They're not raising money from LPs. They're usually using their own funds and they're playing in an area where they have control over their time horizon liquidity. And because of that, it doesn't lend itself. Here's a great structure. Can Citadel or Jane Street or Goldman Sachs come into your market? If they can, you might want to think about a different market. And, <laughs> and someone say, well, the market's too small. I don't know. I met a guy trading vintage game consoles. Yeah, I don't think they're going to come after you. And I think that's a great place to play. So that would probably be one thing. So something you care enough to do all the work in an area that maybe the market's small enough that you're not going to get trounced. But like Daily Fantasy is a great one. There was probably an edge early on, just like online poker. There was this edge early on and we made a bunch of money and then we got crushed. And that's why you end up seeing some of those people rotate. This was a question I had on an episode coming out. Why is it Daily Fantasy? Why is it poker? Why are they into crypto? It's just like, there's this crowd and it's usually a younger generation that has the hustle mentality and wants to go find what the next hustle is. And by hustle, I think some people view that negatively. Other people view that term positively. The way I think about it is, if there's a pot of money and the person who just does the most brute force work with resourcefulness, intelligence, and maybe a little bit of cleverness and luck can get it, then they're going to win. That group of people is going to go find a way. They have a nose to find money. Yeah, I think most of us would prefer the people who put in the most work to get the most amount of money if we're not involved. If we're involved, it's the people that are the smartest can get the most money. But it's all perspective. And I appreciate you tweaking that question and answering the one that was more appropriate. That's next level guest skills. I know your (laughs) question asking skills have gone up by levels. I didn't realize you were going to be a master guest here too. (laughs) Answer this question. Now I'll flip it. Now I can do the questioner. If Buffett was 20 years old today, do you think he'd be trading crypto? If he was 20 years old today, I have to imagine that he would at least be understanding that market. I would imagine that I don't know what he's done historically with gold and whether he's actually traded. He hates it. Hates it. Yeah. But it's just such a big market. And a 20 year old Buffett, hell yes. Because that's what Buffett I'm from 20 to 36 did that's a lot different saying. stuff than post 36. Yeah. If you really study him, I hold him in the highest regard and Munger and all that stuff. And the people that they are, are frameworks that everyone should know. But if you knew him when he was 20, he'd be the best crypto trader in the world. He'd be on Twitter. That's where he would be because that's where the action was. 
equities was a speculative, inappropriate business. This is what I'm thinking about, just like the history of speculation. If you go back to like the 20s and the 30s, a prudent man, which was the definition of like what an investor would, is something with the knowledge would ever make an investment. So you could only buy bonds. To buy equity was speculating because it wasn't a contract. And then Graham comes around, Ben Graham, considered the god of value investing. I'm going to tell you, OG speculator. He's like, you know what we could do? What if we bought an equity where the cash in their bank, less all of their liabilities, was enough to pay us? I know it's risky, boys, but I still think it works. And he does it. But then that edge gets eroded. So it's like, all right, we moved down the balance sheet further. We say, okay, what about all the equipment? What if I can sell the equipment and the land? All right. And then someone was like, what about the income this thing generates? The cash flow the company spits off. Let's factor that in. And you just keep going until we're at a point now in 2024 where people are talking about intangible value that's unknown that will never be paid out to investors as the value of the company. So my only point is that the split between speculation and investing sometimes feels like a personal ad hominem attack on the other person's ability to predict the future and how much risk you're willing to look out and say is where you would go. So for me, someone like that, like a market participant of that age, of course, that's where they would look. If they're not, I'm like, what are you looking at? There's got to be something. Right. Well, actually brings up the next market, which I was going to touch on, which is further out on the speculative curve, was all the rage over the past five to 10 years and has gone through a bit of a pause or a slowdown in the venture markets, the private markets, something that you've seen kind of from both sides of the equation. What is your impression, just having gone from traditional, something like the credit market to the opposite side of the spectrum, private markets, just general outlook for what we went through, assume everybody understands the low rate environment and all that stuff, but what's going to happen to the VC market just in terms of sizing and who's involved, the players, if there's any major changes that are going to happen, or whether it is this just speculative curve where asset classes get bigger and we go further and further out in the curve and we're underwriting all the intangible stuff and yada, yada, yada. I think we continue to go further and further out the speculative curve. I think that there's very few truths in the world, but human nature and manics and panics will always happen. And that in a risk-on world, competing with the people who also have capital is a very hard thing to go against. I just interviewed today, we released the Mark Dow episode. I thought it was outstanding because he frames, this is someone who worked at the US Treasury, who worked at the IMF, who really pushes you to think, like, you really think interest rates did that? You think that that's what it was, Eric? And I've pushed him and played the devil's advocate. And his point is like, look, when risk is on, risk is on. And when risk is off, risk is off. So the Fed can be a really nice narrative. Like everyone likes to talk about the Fed did this or the Fed did that. But we both know that what most PMs are doing is retroactively explaining their performance to make it sound like they had a clue of what was going to happen. I think that the speculative side feeds on itself. I think the difference now on the founder side with VCs is that in the bubble market, it was weird of saying, I have this idea. And I think I could generate cash. And like your idea isn't big enough. That's like a real comment. They would say, this is not going to be VC funded because it's not crazy enough. So if you weren't going to launch rockets, drones, or AI or something, and it fed on itself that they were losing so much, like the worse the VC market is, the more ridiculous their bets have to be to justify the economic model they're in. So like I've always wondered, I know why it won't work, but why someone doesn't just be like, look, we're trying to do like a two to three baggers and all of these things instead of a zero and a hundred. As someone's like, I'm looking for practical ideas that might make money as opposed to like moonshots that 
take out a bunch of dust. I want both to exist, to be honest. But I think what happens, I was just talking to a family office who has a lot of exposure to different VCs, was saying that in a flight to quality, what does quality look like in the venture world? Well, quality looks like founders that have a unique insight and some deep subject matter expertise that they were going after. In a rally market, people want the most audacious idea. They want the 16-year-old math prodigy. And that's like inspiring. I love that shit. I think it's awesome. But then in a down market, and where multiples are coming down and prices are moving the other direction, they're like, okay, who's a steward of this capital? And LPs are asking more. It's just this interesting thing. And Mark also did a good job of explaining this, that in an up market, it's not to throw stones. It's just a worthwhile thing. The fact that SBF was playing a video game while on the phone with what I would argue the most impressive venture capital firm in the world. People might hate them because they're so great, but it's hard to deny they're not amazing at what they do. But the fact that that was considered a positive signal of the audacity of the moment is crazy. And so what ends up happening is that's like obviously an example of low diligence. After a market correction, diligence goes through the roof. But again, remember, these are VC companies. So you're selling stuff you don't have yet. I need that speculation. You need that, well, if this happens, do you see the world that it could be? But then it comes back the other way. Now people are like, show me how many lines of code. How conservative are you with your cash? What's your actual run rate? How quick to profitability? You overcorrect the other way. And then suddenly the market starts to move. Someone finds something. A product market fit happens. And you're underexposed to the winners because you've been going down this wrong path. So it feels like a correction, but in my mind, or maybe it's the markets or the things that I get interested in, I was not inclined to look at moonshotty things because I didn't think I had any alpha or value in a lot of those ideas. It was more like what could actually work to a scale. And I don't even call them like slow moonshots. I think you can become a success that after a long period of time looks like an overnight success. But if it truly happens in eight months, that's amazing. I just think everyone needs to except that that's a huge amount of randomness and luck that led to that situation, not a repeatable investment process. There was a lot in that answer, but I think there's been that snapback that we've seen. And I think people talking about cash flow is a really funny thing, just putting it in perspective relative to what they were talking about a year and two years ago, where cash flow was almost viewed negatively because it just meant you weren't putting enough money into growth. There's a lot to that, but there's something very interesting there. And there is one loan category I think, which is attracting a lot of the attention, a lot of potential investment. And I was trying to think of a quantitative way to ask this question where we could just measure things over time, but I couldn't come up with anything. So I'll just leave it somewhat broad-based. But in the category of AI, it is all of the rage, all of the excitement. We've seen big companies, incumbents that are rolling things out. We've seen small companies, wrappers, all types of things being started up. But just your general perspective, obviously thinking about it, whether it's related to your business, whether it's related to investable opportunities or anything else in the markets, what are you thinking about with AI and what are you paying attention to in the next 6 to 12 months, we'll say, just keeping it shorter term? Some of the engineers that work here with us have a deep training to their PhDs in machine learning and AI. And so getting to talk to people that really understand it is a gift because if you just read the headlines one day, it's a big nothing burger and overhyped and it's going to go the way of crypto or ESG or something like the markets like it and then they hit it. And then the next day you're talking about it's going to kill all of us and we need to stop it. So the government's getting involved. The hyperbole and the mainstream, it can be high. So I think talking to subject matter experts is really helpful. And I think what they would say is this has been around for a long time. What the unlock and really interesting thing was like the general population didn't understand what this could do or how it could be helpful. 
it's hard not to, as someone who wasn't trained in machine learning or artificial intelligence, not to say, oh, this is really cool. And there's things like that we could use for it. I think it obviously is attracting a lot of money. There's totally a grift happening where take any company and slap some AI on it and suddenly it's worth a lot more money. And that's because everyone's excited about the possibility. And that's why I like that. I like that good and bad ideas are going to be funded and stuff's going to be tried. I think that my general thesis is it's hard for me currently. I don't totally have a monetization model for like how this works. I know that it's very expensive to run these things and letting everyone hit on them. And so I don't know how these things make money, but it's hard not to think that these don't accrue to mega winners. Like it's weird when I see startups, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, NVIDIA, and maybe OpenAI get to win from this. But if you're like the little startup that's going to go after them, I'm not totally sure how that happens. The question I tried to ask, I don't think I ever got a good answer, was one of my favorite interviews, it was actually just a question, Bill Gurley and Patrick about search and why I think he invested in OpenTable or Yelp. One of those was him. But basically, when search came out, we had this original idea that we would have search for hotels and search for hardware stores and search for cars and search for transportation and search for school. All these dot-coms popped up. And there's a ton of investment, just like there was an AI. And then suddenly it was like, no, it's just a general thing. It's called Google. And that's what you're all going to use. However, the point he made was that things like OpenTable or Yelp, I forget which one they financed, worked. And they came up with this framework that the issue was if it was a monogamous relationship or it was not. And what that meant was, if you just want to know like what's the best hammer, you just ask that once and then you buy the hammer and then that action's over. That's your hammer until you need another one. That's it. You have a monogamous relationship. With a restaurant, you're constantly looking for new restaurants. That's not a monogamous relationship. So it lent itself to a search and categorization that people would be, oh, do I want this or do I want that? And I thought that was fascinating. And I don't know if it's the right or wrong framework, but when I hear about these agents, I want someone to try to help me understand, is that what we're going to see again where... I get it that everyone's like, no, 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 these little agents are going to do everything. But I had seen that same thesis on the search side that we're going to have this. And then what we realized was, yes, there's some verticals where that works. Maybe like computer coding is a good one that you don't use ChatGPT, you use these like co-pilots that read code and kind of help you. And it's a specific thing. Like, that one makes sense for some good reason. But to me, that's the most interesting question that I'm trying to ponder is I don't disagree that it's going to have impacts. I don't know the size, but I'm trying to figure out where and how it will impact some sort of framework level to be like, okay, this is where I'm going to use it. It's currently more assistant helper analyst level, but that's what I'm most curious about. It's really interesting. I know Gurley is close with Rich Barton, who founded Expedia. Good example where hotels kind of fit that categorization. Zillow, same thing, non-monogamous. And even though it should just be a one-time thing, many of us like People to browse the old it. Zillow. It's new framing that I hadn't considered. And you could see it, especially with personalization, something like individuals' clothing, style, what they're wearing, ideas, that type of stuff, which would be a little bit different than the traditional social or maybe more broadly. So I like that framing. It's something that we can revisit in three months as we have more rapper pitches come in because we get quite you know, a few here's of one of my crazy AI idea this is yes. what i want to say yes i've been wondering i think like one of the most interesting questions will be like how the algorithms get regulated or not meaning what's restricted from being pulled into well, it? well the tiktok oh twitter algorithm the facebook algorithm like this seems to be like the most important thing like ai is kind of a fun distraction for them but that algorithm what we see and what we don't see seems so crucial to society and it's becoming an issue because some venture capitalists are starting to say like we should ban TikTok or something. They're worried about the algorithm. Do you remember when we just had like 
Fox and CBS. I mean, that was a little bit of... I'm always for more information anyways, but I do think I'd love an AI model. I want like a dial that takes the information I'm consuming, would show me... So like, let's say this is base neutrality. For every Democrat story, I'm seeing a Republican story. I just want the meter to be like, so I have my screen time. And I want to be like, oh, today, your algorithm, based on your clicks, I can't necessarily have the algorithm, but was... 22% 22% conservative and 80% liberal. And then like the next day you start clicking and you get this, cause I can feel it. You'd be like, I don't know why I'm seeing this thing. And I'd love the AI to show me objectively. It's like almost like a nutrition thing on food of like, what am I seeing based on my clicking? All right. You heard it. Go fund that. There's the idea. If you can create it, we got some backing for you. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's an idea generation one out there too. So we can measure that and then we could see what type of input that we get from people <laughs> in terms of building that. Awesome. We always appreciate sharing the knowledge on a quarterly basis. And thank you for delaying this one for us. True pleasure. I look forward to doing it again in less than three months, in two and a half months. Deal. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Matt. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.